So, we are starting chapter 5 in Ephesians tonight. And so there's six chapters. We're in the fifth chapter. But it's always important to remember that this book was a letter. You, you may have heard the term epistle. Um, the New Testament is filled with lots of epistles. Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Corinthians. Um, and, and, and oftentimes, we view Scripture in such a way um, where we forget why it was written, for whom it was written, um, and by whom it was written. Uh, and I read uh, an interesting uh, blog by one of my professors this weekend, and he called it, he called it um, post-mortem interpretation. And I thought it was kind of funny because he also called it pomo, inter pomo, pomo interpretation for post-mortem because it's like you're reading the Bible as post-mortem means after they're dead. You're reading the Bible as if the original author and the original audience and the original meaning are dead and they don't apply to you um, anymore. But we can't do that. We have to bear in mind why this letter was written. And we have to read it as the original audience would have read it, which means they would have read it in one sitting. They would have opened a letter like you get Christmas letters or Christmas cards. You don't read like a word a week and then come back next week. It's like Mary, and then you wait six days, Christmas, from, and then you get zealous and you're like the Johnsons in one week. Um, they didn't do that. And it's, taking us, it's, it's taken us 12 weeks so far to get through the first five chapters of Ephesians. It'll take us probably 18 weeks to get through the whole of it. And in churches, and we do this at Sovereign Hope, we break down texts and go slower through them because it allows us to really dissect them. It allows us to, to really understand the full meaning of it. We look at it in light of other scriptures. We look at it in light of what God has said about it. And that's good for us. It allows us to apply it and sit on it and ruminate um, on what God is trying to say to us. But the downside is, is that we can, in, in, especially in letters like this, we can lose the flow of the letter. We can forget what's been said. We can forget where Paul is going and how this is being directed. And it's especially difficult when we just took a week off uh, last week, and now we're looking at taking eight weeks off before we get to verse 3 of chapter 5. And so it's really important to understand what Paul is trying to accomplish in this letter. And so I just want to briefly bring us up to speed as to where we are in the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, um, we saw that Paul is really praying the gospel over the church. He's praying that the church comes to know the gospel, to understand the overwhelming power of Christ and the grace of God which resulted in your salvation. He, he prays to you and preaches to you the depth of your sin, and yet in God, in his great mercy, while we were dead in our trespasses, sent Christ to die for us so that we can now live in Christ. He points out our sin and Christ's sinlessness. In essence, the first three chapters of this book describe who we are as humans. Who are we as humans? We're either sinners saved by grace through Christ, or we're sinners dead in our sin. And really the theological term um, Paul's describing in these first three chapters is justification. Have you been made just? Have you been made right before God? You're either right before God or you're wrong before God. That is who humans are. You get two of those categories, not kind of right, not kind of wrong. You're either made just or you are not made just. And then Paul, after speaking to, are, are you in Christ? Has Christ died for your sins? Then he transitions and he says, you who are saved by Christ, you are the church. You make up the church. And in our 21st century language, and often in Christianity today, and I don't understand it, people see that as a bad thing. 
They, they like make fun of Christ's bride thinking that they'll impress Christ. The church is just rules and organizations. And it's like, this is a gift is what Paul's saying. It's a gift that you're part of the church. Don't whine about it. Don't complain about it. You don't get an option for it. The church is Christians. Christians make up the church. Christians saved by Christ make up the church. And this is what Paul is saying. Not only do they make up the church, they act like the church. And this is where Paul starts to transition his tone in Ephesians. And you see that transition um, in Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says this, after preaching the gospel and preaching justification, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so here in chapter 4, we see Paul transition from who you are to how you act in the light of who you are. See, Paul has established who you are. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, you live with Christ. Now, what does it mean to act like that? How does who we are shape how we act? And really, those two verses in chapter 4 make a statement that's often overlooked by Christians. What Paul is saying is that Christians are different. Christians are different. And that may seem simple, but when you really think about it, that should shape how we view struggles and how we view our own lives here. Because, because Christ has made us different in himself, Christ is different from the world, and because we are now in Christ, we now walk, talk, live, laugh, and love differently from the world. And because Christ is different and we are made new in Christ, we are becoming more like Christ every day, meaning we're becoming more different from the world every day. Not distant from the world, not better than the world. Christ is better than the world. Christians aren't. Christians have a better Christ, but you, by nature, are not better. And so we're different from the world. And the process of becoming different from the world in biblical terms is sanctification. Becoming more like Christ changing from what you once were into who Christ is. This is what Paul is talking about for the remainder of the book. To be more like Christ, and this is where we really have to think about it, to be more like Christ is to be less like the world. And see, many Christians wrestle with becoming more like Christ because we don't really want to be different than the rest of the world. And we're frustrated with how hard it is, and we're frustrated with how people respond to it because we think that we can become like Christ and still be friends and seen as normal and seen as completely assimilated into a world which is not representative of who we are. You're not like the world. You're like Christ. It'll be difficult. It'll be hard for us. And Paul makes that case very clear as it goes on where he says this later on in chapter 4 in verse 17. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And so again, he's saying, you are being different. Don't walk like you used to walk. You're different than that. You're defined by Christ, not by the world. Walk different from that. And so to build off of what Paul is saying at the beginning of chapter 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called is to walk like Christ, not walk like the world. Christ has made you different, and different people act different. 
And this is kind of where we ended off last week. And, and we ended with verse 32 of chapter 4 last week. And it was a really pivotal verse for us because Paul was describing in chapter 4 all of the selfish tendencies of sin, the ability of sin to taint community and hurt community and destroy community. And then he says, but when you are acting in Christ, it's a benefit to community. It builds community. And then he ends with this in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And see, it all hinges on because God in Christ forgave you. We should be a benefit to a community. We should be relationship builders. We should be an encouragement to those who are around us because Christ has forgiven us in Christ. That's us becoming different because God has forgiven us, not on our own merit, not because of who you are, not because of your good grades, not because of your skill or your potential, but because of Christ, we act different. We're a different benefit to the world. Now, tonight, Paul is really going to expound on that, that simple phrase of because God. Because God has forgiven us in Christ, we as Christians interact differently with Christ. We interact in unique ways through Christ. Two specific ways um, that we're going to look at tonight. Two ways in which we as Christians interact with Christ flowing out of God forgiving us in Christ. And we pick up our verses tonight um, with the first verse of chapter 5. And I just want to pray just quickly before we get going. Um, Lord, we just pray that as we, as we look at this text, as we look at what it means to be different in Christ, that... Uh, that you enable our hearts to do that. Um, Lord, as we talk about love tonight, we, we think of um, in Corinthians where you say, if, if we have all the strength, if we have all the skill, if we have the, the ability to speak in tongues and, and, and to talk like angels, but have not love, we lack everything. And so, Lord, make us aware of that love tonight. Make us aware of why we're different tonight. Make us aware of how we should be distinct tonight. And, Lord, lead us to repentance and worship through that. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And I want to read that with verse 32 because they flow together. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Keep that in mind. As God in Christ forgave you, therefore, be imitators of Christ as beloved children children. And I would say um, that much of the Christian faith can really be boiled down to those two words, because God. Because God forgave us, we are entitled to things we were never once entitled to. First and foremost, because God forgave us in Christ, we're admitted into God's family. Didn't we already learn this in chapter 1? Didn't Paul already communicate this to us in chapter 1, um, verses 3 through 5, where Paul says this, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it starts with God. Blessed be God and the Father and God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see, because God sent Christ 
to forgive our sins, we are adopted into God's family. You are adopted, as Paul says, as a child of God. Now, that's something to bear in mind because what Paul is telling us here is the first thing um, that Christians should do. He's wanting to show us that Christians should be imitators of God. Wow, how did I get that, right? That's deep study in the word. Christians should be imitators of God. I drew that from imitate God. Um, That's where we get it from, okay? It's pretty clean, pretty simple, but really it has to be tied to this family aspect. I was thinking about this today, and I was just thinking, I said, I said to myself, because I talk to myself when I'm writing sermons, I said, you know who's hilarious? And maybe you guys have heard this guy. I think Dimitri Martin is hilarious. If anyone's listened to Dimitri Martin, the stand-up comedian, um, it's great. My wife and I listened to him on our way. We drove to Spoke, or Seattle last weekend, and there were points where neither of us could stop laughing. He's he just got dry, like, one-liners. Um, and it just I, I don't laugh a lot at comedians, and my wife slaps me for it, but I laugh at Dimitri Martin. Um, you know whose humor I find not very funny and kind of cheesy? My dad's. You know who I sound like? My dad. It's like we all have those things in our lives where we see our parent, we're like, I'm never going to do that. But now as I'm growing up and as I have a kid and I'm starting a family, I find myself saying, I just did that a lot. Um, and, and my humor is coming out and, and my, my wife's like, that's a Rob joke. Because Rob's my dad. She's like, that's a Rob joke. And they're all really bad puns. And, and like, it, it's not natural for me to sound like Dimitri Martin, but it's natural for me to sound like my dad. Why is that? Because one is my father and one's not. One has had an innate and shaping influence on my life because he is my father. You see, no one had to teach. Owen's just, he's 15 months years, he's this tall from the table, okay? (laughs) Owen's 15 months old, he's this tall. Um, 15 months old, and no one had to teach Owen to mimic me. He just does it. When I come home from work with my coffee mug, he grabs my coffee mug, says cough, and acts like he's drinking out of it. And then on Saturdays, when I sit down to watch football, he steals the remote from me and then sticks out his gut and just sits like this and watches football. Um, And there's just all these little things where it's like those warm, fuzzy things that happen in parents' heart, like emotions, I think are what they're called. Um, but, But it's because Owen, in his little way, is mimicking me. Because I'm what he sees, because I'm the person who takes care of him, because I'm his dad. No one had to teach him to do that. It was because he's my son and I'm his father that he naturally began to imitate me. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying to you, by nature of being adopted into God's family, seek to imitate God the Father. Seek to desire God the Father. Seek to have such a holy and pure affection for God that the cry of your heart is to be like him. Be imitators of God. Now when Paul's telling us to be like God, we'll never be like God in quality. None of us will ever be like God in quality. God is wholly other than us. But I want us to look at what um, John says in 1 John 3, 2. It says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
And so there John is saying that, that you will be like God. But it's not in terms of quality. It's in terms of character. Your character traits will be as holy as God himself. And so when was the last time where, where you're sitting and you're, you're in class or you're, you're with your roommate or you're out to dinner or you're at the football game and you're thinking, am I imitating God right now? Like I think of me as a pastor and I very rarely, I don't think ever have had that conscious thought. I think like, oh, have I imitated Jesus? Am I being Christ-like? I've thought that. But to be an imitator of God, I've never really thought about that. And I think part of it is, is that I know that I'll never be like God here. And so I'm like, I don't need to work on that now. Like, I'll settle for how I am. To be like Tyler in a church, that's good enough for me. I don't need to be like God. I don't need to imitate God. I just need to put up a facade of wanting to be like God, of wanting to desire God. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's not saying, wait until you're in heaven and then be like God. Then seek to imitate God. Paul's saying right now, you people in Ephesus, you people in Laodicea, you people that I want this little letter to circulate to, imitate God as children now. And so we're like, okay, well, let's, let's imitate God. Now, this is, this is where it gets even harder. Because what's God like? Right? And I don't normally do audience participation, but in this, we're like, when we think of God, what do we think about? What attributes? What defines God? Power. Power. What else? Generosity, love, three things. We got them nailed, right? <laughs> that was a joke. But, but love, satisfaction, justin, peace, justice, not justin, justice, peace, perfection, omnipotence, um, uh, omnipresence, all of these things. The, the, these things that don't really have a face. And this is where it gets hard because can we look love in the face? Can we see what satisfaction is? You see, if I were to tell you, I want you to be like LeBron James, we would know that, okay, I need to be, grow to be six foot eight and 250 pounds. We see that. We can envision that. That's what LeBron James is like. But when someone says, I want you to be joy, imitate joy, that's a little harder, right? It's, it's ethereal. It's faceless. You can't really peg what joy is. And God knows that. God knows that the words that we use to define him blow our minds. We'll never understand the holiness of God. We'll never understand the full love of God. One day we will, but here on the earth we won't. But look at what God did. If we flip to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, right? No one has seen God. But what? The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So who's the God at the side of God the Father? Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus has made God known. While no one has seen God here on this earth, no one has seen God the Father, we have all seen God the Father by gazing at God the Son. Jesus embodies the Father Jesus is part of the Trinity. He is the second person of God. And as we gather for the Christmas season last week um, in the Moore series at Sovereign Hope, uh, John Lumen talked about Jesus being Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. We have never seen God, but we see God in Christ. 
We see God with us. We see God incarnate. And this is why Paul follows 5.1 with 5.2. Because this is what he says. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the second thing Paul is telling us to do is that Christians should be partakers of and exhibit the love of Christ. Christians should be partakers of and exhibit the love of Christ. It's very important to understand the whole of this. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we do that? Walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. Now here's the thing, and and let me give you some confidence here. No one with a shred of any academic understanding doubts that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived on the earth some 2,000 years ago. No one doubts that. No one says Jesus is a fictitious character. Now where the question comes is when we start saying, well, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Some people say he was a good teacher. Some people say he was a Jewish zealot. Some people say he was a miracle worker. But many people and many Christians say that Jesus came to be an example. Jesus did come to be an example. In one sense, this is what Paul is saying. He says, walk in love as Christ walked in love. Model love as Christ modeled love. And Jesus himself says this. Jesus modeled true love for us. He said this himself where he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down a life for his friends. Jesus said that knowing full well that he was the one who was going to do this. He was setting an example for that. In John 13, Jesus himself says, I'm an, I'm an example of this. It's not, it's not heretical to say Jesus is an example. Peter in 1 Peter 2 says that Jesus is an example. But here's the thing. Jesus is not simply an example. Jesus is much more than an example. That's not where the story ends. Jesus didn't simply come to embody the reality of who God is as an example. He came also to enable us to live in the same manner that Jesus came and lived. He's not simply an example. He's also an enabler. Moving back to that LeBron James analogy, I can give you um, an example of athleticism in LeBron James. We know we have to jump high. We know we have to have, to have muscles and shoot and dunk and get Nike ads and all that kind of stuff. Um, you, you have to be overwhelmingly athletic. We see his attributes and his skills and, and his jumping ability. But I could say, be like that. And we could say, okay, I see what it requires. But no one's up here doing the things that LeBron James is doing. I could tell you right now, and I could give you all of the footage we have on LeBron James, and you will not ever be able to live like LeBron James. But that's the beauty of Christ. Because Christ didn't just give us an example that we can't ever model. See, not only did Christ come to live as an example, but by dying and giving himself up for a sinful humanity, he also enabled us to live like his example. You see, Christ is not only the model for imitating God, he's also the means for imitating God. You cannot imitate God unless Christ has worked in your heart. And we couldn't live like Christ But Christ in his mercy took our sin and gave us his righteousness. So for the first time, we can actually live like Christ. We can choose to 
to live like sons and daughters. We can, we can have an affection for God because Christ has given us that affection for God. And this is beautiful because everything hinges here on the love that Christ had for us. Walk in love as Christ walked in love and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And we see three things in which the love of Christ shapes our walking in love. Your command, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So what does it mean then? Again, that's ethereal. What does it mean to walk in love? Is it like Valentine's Day and heart-shaped chocolates and cards and roses? Is that what it means? If Jesus came to model love, what can we learn from that? First thing we learn is that Jesus' love is a giving love. It says in the text, he gave himself up for us. And this really plays off of what we talked about last week. Because I've found that when I'm spiritually dry, when I'm not doing my devotions and, and, and I'm, I'm really not trying to be an imitator of God, I'm not trying to really connect, I'm just kind of living. We've all been there, right? Where we feel like we're in a rut for a little bit. Things are a little dry. Church is kind of boring. Studying sounds better than GCF. Um, I've realized that in those moments, I have an extremely short temper. Everything seems to irritate me. And that's because everything and anything that comes up seems to be in my way. It disrupts my wants, my needs, my desires, and my plans. But I've also noticed that me being the exact same person, when I'm consistently in the word and, and working on my prayer and going to church and not simply listening to sermons, but, but listening to sermons and, and hearing the word of God being preached and seeking to apply it to my heart and, and praying and, and being involved in community and, and fellowship, I found that my life naturally becomes more compassionate. I become more generous. I become more sympathetic. I become more caring. I become more, more open to seeing the needs of those who are around me. That's not a coincidence. It's not that, that Tyler's bipolar, and some days he's, he's, he's hardened and selfish, and other days he just wakes up on the good side of the bed, and he's, he's just going to help you and give you the shirt off his back. That's because Christ has set us free to be filled by the love of Christ, so that we can promote the love of Christ through our actions and through our lives. You see, the love of Christ, as we've seen so often in this book, is not individualistic. The love of Christ is an outpouring. Christ poured himself out for us, and we, being filled with the love of Christ, pour ourselves out for others. And Paul is writing this to the church because this is extremely important to the church. Because so many times people can come to the church or come to GCF or come to community group. And you could, do, you could do all three of those. You could get the trifecta, community group, church, and GCF. And you could go to each and every one of them and you could, you could just botch it. Because you come and you sit and you listen and you go and you leave. It's all about you. What is the church providing for you? What are you taking from it? And there's little to no service that actually happens. But to walk in love as Christ loves is to pour out for other people. It's to be involved in things that we wouldn't naturally be involved in. Not because we are be instantly social, but because Christ has made us social, because we have such a great cause and such a great connection and such a great gospel to give. And again, we can't escape the corporate benefit of following Christ. And I, and I, I love the, the word good. 
Because I think one of the downfalls of our language is that we have to add like additional adjectives. Exceedingly good, wonderfully and remarkably good. It's like good isn't enough for us. But church, Christ is good. In the fullness sense of the word, in the rich depth and beauty and, and solidity and vitality of the word, Christ is good. Christ works his way out of his people and into the world through the loving sacrifice of the saints. This manifests itself in evangelism, in discipleship, in service, in kindness, and what we read in verse 32, in forgiveness. That's Christ becoming known in the world through his church, loving like Christ and giving themselves up. And how often do you love as Christ loved? And just one caveat, some of us are more gifted in giving of ourselves, but some of us who do that also um, kind of think our compassion is billable. Like we'll give and we'll serve, but still it's kind of we want, we want to be seen as having served. We want to be noticed in our serving. We want to get the accolades of serving. That's not as Christ served. Christ served selflessly. How often do we empty ourselves out for the mission of God, for the benefit of those who are around us? Or do we selfishly take it in and hoard it rather than allowing it to fill us and shape our interaction with people? You see, Jesus' love is a giving love, a selfless love, an outpouring of love on one another as the church. It's corporate. Second thing that defines Christ's love um, that Paul showed us is that it's a pleasing love. We saw that where Paul says it's a fragrant offering. And, and I mean this in two ways. First is that um, Christ's love was pleasing to others. I mean, how, how pleasing is it? For the last 2,000 years, in hundreds of countries, in hundreds of languages, people have gathered to celebrate Christ's love, to gaze at the beauty and radiance of Christ on the cross. Man, that's a pleasure that's an offering. That's something that people smell and breathe, and you're like, that is good. See, not only is Christ good, Christ is exceedingly attractive. There is nothing more beautiful to humanity than Christ. And I love it because in Revelation, John sees this vision of Christ in chapter 1. And he's trying to explain it, but he can't. There, there's not enough words. He's like, he, his hair is like wool. And we're like, well, that sounds completely unattractive. But, but he's like, he, I'm grasping for straws. His hair is like, is like wool and he's radiant and he's white like snow and his eyes are burning fire and, and his, his, his feet are burnished bronze as polished in a furnace and his face is as radiant as the sun. And we're like, well, we still don't know what happens. And then we don't hear from Jesus for a little bit. And then uh, Revelation 5 comes around and we see Jesus again. And he comes and he pops on the scene. And what do the elders do? All they do is say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. You see, there is a beauty of Christ. There is a pleasure in Christ. He is the greatest offering that we have ever seen. Jesus is remarkably attractive to his people. We are pleased in Christ. And I love this because God himself looked down on Jesus here on the earth and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You see, not only are we pleased by Jesus' great love, God the Father himself is pleased 
by Jesus' great love. You see, when you walk in the love of Christ, you walk in such a way where those around you are also stirred to worship God. When you walk as someone who, who, who walks in light of Christ, who is a pleasing aroma, you should stir God-glorifying worship in those who are around you. Jesus has stood as a centerpiece of Christianity. If we are to love as Christ loved, we also should stir up affection for the Father and the beauty of Christ. The flip side of this offering is that in offering Jesus, when Jesus offered himself, he was satisfied. So you focus on us being satisfied by Christ, and we focus on God being satisfied by Christ, but Jesus was satisfied in his lifestyle. In Hebrews it says, for the what set before him? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus found pleasure in it. God himself, as we just saw, found pleasure in it. Moral of the story, you will be most satisfied and joyful and when you are filled with the living love of Christ. And see, oftentimes we look at this language because it's so anti how we view life. It's not individualistic. It's an outpouring of self. It's a selfless thing. It's an other-oriented life. And we would see that by all accounts and say, that sucks. But here's the thing. If it pleases God the Father and God the Son, it's going to please you. Okay? You're easy to please. Right? It's like, what do you want on your pizza? Uh, pepperonis will get like 95% of the world. It's you're easy to please. Our God is a consuming fire. He is perfect and holy and righteous and completely other than his humanity. If God is pleased, you better believe you're going to be pleased in it. If God finds joy and satisfaction in something, we as humans can't even begin to scratch the surface of pleasure and meaning and joy to be found in that object. A life lived in Christ is the most satisfying, off, satisfying offering you can give to God, you can give to others, and you can give to yourself. To love like Christ isn't a burden to us. It's the most fulfilling life you'll ever experience. Finally, when you walk in Christ's love, you walk in a sacrificing love. It says there, not only that it, is it an offering, but it's a sacrifice to God. And let, let me get this straight. This idea of sacrifice, this third component of Christ's love, doesn't come unless you have the first two. If you don't find pleasure in it, if you don't see yourself as a family member of God, then sacrifice is, is the farthest thing from your mind. Unless you are filled with the pleasure of Christ, you will never be able to live a life of sacrifice. And really, that's just shorting yourself. To live a life of sacrifice, as we just talked about, as long as it's something that Jesus himself has modeled, we find that there's great joy in that. And in a sense, we know this on a, on a miniature level, and you guys are doing that now. It's Thursday night. It's finals, uh, the week before finals week. There's all sorts of things you could be doing, and you're sacrificing your time to come to GCF. You sacrifice your time to give, to donate, to serve, to minister, to read the Bible with your roommate, to start a devotion with some guys or girls on your floor. That's a sacrifice. 
But it's the most rewarding thing you could ever do. Because in giving, that's the beautiful paradox of, of being in Christ. In giving, all we get is Christ. There's no greater reward for that. To walk in love as Jesus walked is to give your life wholly to God. To sacrifice it to God. To God's purpose, to God's will. And Jesus himself got that right. If anybody could have could set the tone for their life, it would be Jesus. Right? He, he, he's the son of God. He's God incarnate. He's God with us. Jesus, if anyone could be entitled to living it on their own, Jesus could be like, you know what? I'm down here now. God's up there. Like I could set up a pretty ratastic kingdom of my own down here. Um, but he didn't. Because look at what Jesus said in John 5 verse 30, where he says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus, again, found joy in sacrificing all of his priorities and sacrificing all of his plans to the will of the Father because Jesus' greatest joy is in the will of the Father being achieved in his life. The best life you can live is not your own. The best life you can live is a life sacrificed to the throne of God, sold out to God the Father, putting the mantle of Christ's mission on your shoulder and moving forward in his purposes, in his plans, in his timing, under his rule. Because here's the thing. Christ has made us children of God. Christ has rescued us out of darkness and into light. He has offered us pleasures forever mo, forever mo. That's what Owen would say, mo. He has brought us purpose, identity, joy, peace, satisfaction, ability, and worth. His will, the person who gave you all of that, is infinitely better than your own will. His dreams for you are infinitely better than your own petty dreams. And the beauty of God's dreams is that we have a word for it, reality. God doesn't dream. God does. Everything God wants to accomplish, he will accomplish. So do you seek to live according to God's will? Do you seek to take your life and sacrifice it for the love of Christ? Because Christ set the tone in loving in such a way where he killed his own priorities for the joy of taking God's priorities. Are your affections so stirred towards the Father that you can honestly say with Paul, as he said in Philippians, that to live is Christ, to die is gain? It's a bold statement. Because if you can't say that, if you can't honestly say that, you know what, I, I, I want that. I want to throw, and not throw away in human terms, but I want to live in terms of God's will first and foremost. I want to take on Christ's love that is self-sacrificial and a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. If you can't say that wholeheartedly, I'm not depressed for you. I'm happy. I'm rejoicing for you because that means you really haven't experienced the love of Christ and your best days are ahead of you. Because when you've experienced the love of Christ, there's nothing more attractive than what Paul is talking about right now. Because there's no greater purpose than this. You may not have experienced the full love of God, but by the grace of God through Christ Jesus the Lord, you can. 
When Christ consumes our heart, we can join with the rest of the church in saying, because of who God is, because I am forgiven in Christ, I lay down my life, my talents, my treasures to serve, to love, and to preach the gospel of Jesus in and out of season. To be God's child is to be forgiven of sin. And to be forgiven of sin is to start loving as Jesus loved. So keep that in mind as we break for for a month and a half. Don't let the gospel take vacation with you. Don't assume the gospel in your life. Don't think that breaks include breaks of fellowship from Christ. But love as Christ loved and involve yourself with others. Give yourself to others and promote the worship and glory of God wherever you go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Um, and Lord, we, uh, as we look at the love of, of Christ in this, as we look at the command to be imitators of God and to walk in love, we see the burden of it in one sense because we see that, that, that as John the Baptist said, um, we must decrease and you must increase. But then we just um, join as the Father did in Mark and saying, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Give us the gift of faith in ways that we have not yet experienced so that we trust and truly know in our hearts that it is better to walk in love as Christ loved because Christ's love has enabled us to do more than we ever could have done on our own. We love you, Lord. We give you this time. Lead us in worship. Praise in your name.